Well, good morning. I want to say hi to everybody again in this room and joining us online. So glad that you're here today. I, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, um, but things are a little stressful in our world right now. Um, I, I don't know if you have uh, been paying attention, but uh, it, it kind of seems like the political differences in our world are dividing a lot of people right now. Anybody notice this? Thank you, Captain Obvious, you're thinking. <laughs> I, uh, I know that comes to no surprise um, to us. Studies have actually shown that our nation right now is more polarized than we have ever been since the Civil War. One in six Americans has not spoken to a family member or a friend since the last election because, because of political differences. Millions of people are organizing their social lives, like who they actually see and spend time with, and their media feeds, what they read and what they see, along ideological lines, avoiding people with opposing viewpoints. Now, if you are anything like me, then you often find that the complexity and the heartbreak of this world is just like totally overwhelming. It's kind of like our idealism compels us to like step out, step out into the world in an attempt to just heal brokenness and, and be a part of solutions and then the brick wall of reality hits you. Sometimes I wonder, are cynical people just idealists who have been disappointed one too many times? Because we have this desire to step out, to step outside of our comfort zones, to try to help. And here in this context, we remember that Christ invites us into the present moment to live and to find life right here, right now. That the presence of Christ is always in the present. And that even when we don't see that God is working, God is working. Even when we don't see that God is active, God is active working in and through and around the seasons, the various seasons of our world and our lives. So, you know, the question is, how can we engage in the issues of our world without adding to the ugliness that seems so prevalent? What does it look like to, on one hand, not just withdraw and avoid all conflict, and on the other hand, not just like drop bombs every time we open our mouths? What does it look like to join Christ in the difficult and yet the revolutionary third way of Jesus. Before we dive into this topic, I'd like to invite you, wherever you are, right here in this room or joining us at home, to just close your eyes for a minute. Take two deep breaths. Remember that we are already fully immersed 
in God's presence. God is closer to us than the air we breathe. God is nearer to you than your next breath. Lord God, help us to see how we can join you in your work in this world, your work of redeeming and reconciling all that is broken. You, Lord Jesus, have torn down the dividing wall of hostility, and you invite us to join you in waging peace and tearing down walls of hostility and building bridges. Show us what it means to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, God. Show us what it means to be peacemakers in this world. Show us what it means to be people of peace in a conflicted and anxious world, not conflict avoiders, not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Would you guide our hearts, God? Would you guide our minds? Would you guide our mouths? And would you lead us in every way today and every day? Amen. Amen? So it seems in our world right now, for followers of Christ, uh, sometimes it feels like we just kind of have lost the plot. Do you ever feel this way? Just, just kind of like get sucked into all that's happening in the world and you sort of like lose the plot, forget the story that we live in. And the scriptures is the true story of how the universe works. The Bible gives us a picture of the drama of scripture. And some of you remember Christopher Wright. He came and spoke here at Platt Park Church a couple of years ago. I love this picture that he provides of kind of the grand narrative of scripture, the overarching drama of the scriptures. And I think we might have a picture of it. We don't have a picture of it. That's all right. I'm just going to explain it to you. Just imagine with me for a minute that you have like seven little images. And these are like the seven acts in the grand story of scripture, the grand story that we find ourselves in. The first image is like a triangle. And the first act is the act of creation. This is the big story of the Bible, the big story that we live in. So creation, in the beginning, we learn that God creates the heavens and the earth and places humanity in this perfect garden. So on that triangle, you have like God, humanity, and creation. That's the earth, the animals, and everything in it. And those three are in perfect relationship with each other until act two which you could imagine just like a big X. Act two is rebellion. That is when we chose to go our own way, when we chose to disobey God's commands. We chose for ourselves what was good and what was evil. We brought sin and death and division into human life and into creation itself. So that's act two. And then act three, you could imagine just like a big arrow. Act three is the Old Testament promise. A chunk of the Bible is the Old Testament promise. What is that? It's when God promised that he would bring blessing and salvation where we had brought 
curses and death. And through Abraham, he launches this people, Israel. And through Israel, the good news and blessing is ultimately going to embrace all of the nations of the earth. So that's like Act 3 in the Bible. And then right in the center, this is the core of the story, this is the center of the gospel, is Christ. Everything of the story revolves around Christ. Christ is in the middle. The life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is what we center the big narrative, the whole story of scripture around. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. And then you could imagine like another arrow, which is the New Testament mission. The New Testament mission. That's like act five of the grand narrative. It's like the drama is continuing with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the church and God's mission through the church in the world. Now the church includes Jews and Gentiles. And that, that act five, this part of the story, it stretches from the day of Pentecost until the return of Christ. And then you've got act six. In act six, you could imagine like a giant check mark. And the act six in the Bible, in the grand narrative of scripture, is the final judgment. Now I know the word judgment gets a really bad rap, but let me just redefine it for us for a minute. When the Bible speaks of judgment, it is the good news that evil will not have the last word. When the Bible speaks of the final judgment, it is that evil will not have the last word because God will ultimately put all things right. That is what judgment in the Bible means. God will put all things right by dealing with and destroying all wrong and all sin and all evil. So that's Act 6. And then Act 7, you could imagine like another triangle. The first one is a triangle, and the last one is a triangle. Because the end is the new creation. The end of the Bible drama story is actually a dramatic new beginning. It's the new creation. Because after God has put all things right, God is going to make all things new. And God will come and dwell with a redeemed humanity. That perfect garden from the beginning will return. The perfect garden will be restored. Heaven and earth will be reunited. And God will dwell with us. And all the things that have corrupted and spoiled and brought pain and suffering in this fallen world are going to be no more. So this is the big plot. This is the grand narrative. This is the story of scripture. This is the story that followers of God in the way of Jesus find themselves in. Now let me ask you this. If you're tracking with me, we've got seven, right? Seven acts in the grand story, the grand narrative. Creation, rebellion, Old Testament promise, Christ, New Testament mission, final judgment, new creation. Let me ask you this. Which act are we living in right now? We are living in, it's hard for me to hear you behind the plexiglass, but I'm assuming you all shouted out your answers. Um, <laughs> uh, we're living in Act, New Testament mission. Act 5, that is where we find ourselves. 
followers of Jesus are participants in this great drama. We are called to live in this story and for this story. We ought to, like, orient our lives around this story. We should live in light of what this story says about who we are and why we are here. This story gives us our identity and it gives us our mission, our purpose as the people of God for the sake of God's mission. But maybe you've noticed, like, there are some other stories being told. There are some other stories being told. There's another story being told, and every day in a thousand ways, we're invited to live in a different story. In fact, ever since the Great Rebellion in Act 2, there have always been other stories being told. In Scripture, we see that the center of any other narrative beyond the grand narrative that the Scriptures offer us, any other narrative has as its center not Christ, not the rule and reign of Jesus in the kingdom of God, but every other narrative has as its center what the Scriptures call an idol has as its center a place of worship for human beings that is something other than the rule and reign of Jesus. There's the idol of comfort, the idol of security. In the Old Testament, you see like, you know, they built with human hands the golden calf. There are all sorts of different idols that can center these other stories. But we know we're living in another story when we find that our worship, and remember, you don't have to be a, like a person of faith or something. You don't have to be a churchgoer to worship. Because remember, everybody's getting a spiritual formation. doesn't matter what they say they believe. We're all getting a spiritual formation. The question is just what is forming me spiritually? And in the story of God, the center is the person of Jesus. So my worship is of Jesus, and the rule and reign of Jesus is forming me. But in every other narrative, the way I know is that my worship is something other than Jesus. So when I worship comfort, when I worship security, when I worship money, when I worship my country, when I worship my family, when I worship anything other than Jesus, I know I'm living in a different story. And today... I want us to look at this story that is so tempting to live in that we're just going to call the story of us versus them. The story of us versus them. In an article by the National Academy of Sciences, researchers, researchers have found um, that the average Republican and the average Democrat today suffer from a dynamic that is comparable to the dynamic between Palestinians and Israelis in the Middle East. Like in both places, each side thinks it's driven by benevolence, I'm driven by benevolence, while the other side is evil and motivated by hatred. And so the other becomes the enemy 
with whom one cannot negotiate and one cannot compromise. So we think, you know, my ideology is based in love to their ideology based in hate. People will often say, you know, I think like the problem facing our country right now is incivility. Certainly that's a problem. But I wonder if it's something far worse than just not being civil. I wonder if what we're seeing and what we're dealing with is actually the contempt. A culture of contempt. You know, relational expert John Gottman has this, he's kind of known for being able to like observe a relationship, observe a couple, and identify with like 90% accuracy, is that couple going to make it? And when he talks about how he does that and what he, he says there's four horsemen, there's like four things that will ruin a relationship. If they go unchecked, they will ruin a relationship. What are they? Criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. And he says, of those four, contempt is the worst. I wonder if what we're seeing sort of play out on a, on a national scale in our world right now is this culture of contempt. Contempt is like a noxious brew of anger and disgust. Like it's not just contempt for other people's ideas. It is contempt for other people. Philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer defined contempt this way. He said contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. We're seeing contempt everywhere. Divisive politicians, screaming heads on TV, hateful columnists, just about everything, some days on social media. And this story is working by catering to like one ideological side feeding our desire to believe that we're completely right, the other side is just wrong, and it's not just wrong, but like made up of ridiculous fools, those people. Contempt makes compromise, it makes progress impossible, and it also makes unhappy people. The the unhappiness of contempt, according to the American Psychological Association, it, it's, they have found that that feeling of rejection that so often is experienced after being treated with contempt, it increases, surprise, surprise, anxiety, depression, sadness. It's like our culture of contempt must surely be connected to our rise in diseases of despair in this world. And it also does damage, not just to the person on the receiving end of contempt, it does damage to me, the contemptuous person. Because when I am spewing contempt, two stress hormones go up, cortisol and adrenaline. So it's kind of like just, you could just think like, both personally and and publicly, contempt causes us great harm. So the culture of contempt is going to invite us to engage this world with superiority. 
the story of God invites us to engage this world in humility. But let's just be honest, that is hard work. Like, it is much easier to fight over who is right and who is wrong than to actually live as Jesus taught us to live. It is much easier to focus on, like, well, who is in and who is out and who aligns with me than to actually become like Jesus, to to actually become a forgiving, reconciling, bridge-building presence in this world, a peacemaker, It's much easier to be engaged in battles than it is to do what Jesus actually taught. You know, love my enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. So how do we move beyond enemy-making into a space beyond enemies? Because sometimes it just feels like there's only two options to engage the brokenness of the world. Like either you're silent and withdraw, or you drop bombs every time you open your mouth. But what if Jesus is actually inviting us into a space beyond enemies? I don't mean like a middle ground. I don't mean like a find a way to smooth things over. I'm not talking about like a niceness. I'm not talking about compromising on injustice. I'm talking about something altogether different, like beyond the trap of ideology beyond the enemy-making machine story of our world. I'm talking about like actually following God in the way of Jesus by living in this story, this strong and unshakable kingdom of God. You know, it's, it's interesting just like historically, if you, if you go back to just like right after World War II, lots of people at that time were asking the question, like how did Germany a Christian nation allowed the atrocities of the Holocaust. Like, how, how was it that, like, 17,000-some Lutheran pastors went, um, you know, all of a sudden, one day, are saying, like, Heil Hitler? Like, how, how did that happen? And they were asking that question a lot after World War II. How did the worst hate and injustice and terror get set loose in the world? And it really was in the wake after World War II, that people started talking about ideologies and how an ideology seeks to set one person above another. And in a culture of contempt, that is exactly what is happening. In a culture of contempt, ideologies fuel an antagonism where we enter conflict by gathering people around a banner and getting them really angry. And there is like no better way (laughs) to gather a crowd than to get them angry at the other side. And then we begin to like get our identity from the banner that we're waving. We even will start to feel good. Like we'll have a sense of elation in our bodies when the other side starts to lose or when bad things happen to the other side. You know, we'll smugly think like, told you so. When that happens in me, when that happens in you, you can know the culture of contempt is winning. You can know that at least in that moment, 
the rule and reign of Jesus is not central to your heart and your mind and your life and your mouth. And it's an opportunity to repent and to come again into the big story that God offers us in Christ where the rule and reign of Jesus, no matter what we face, is always central. You know, I was talking with a friend this week. We drove up to the mountains for the day, and she was just saying, you know, when I have traveled to China, she said, I feel like the Chinese Christians, the followers of Jesus in China, in the underground church, are like the most joyful people. She's just like anecdotally telling me this story. I was really thinking about it. I was just thinking, like, after she said that, how interesting. So much joy. In the context of a nation that not supporting that faith, often antagonistic to that faith, not even allowed to, to meet publicly in some places. Now, the culture of contempt is like the story of a lot of our world right now, right? And it places at its center an us versus them enemy-making machine. That is its place of worship. The practice of following God in the way of Jesus, like the practice of reconciliation in the very presence of Christ is like the exact opposite of the culture of contempt. It's, it's like an altogether different way. The practice of reconciliation in the very presence of Christ is really, it's like the opposite of the enemy-making machine. It's a totally different frame. So in Matthew 18, the passage that Tim read for us, our scripture for this morning, Jesus says, when you have a disagreement, when you have a conflict, when someone sins against you, you go to see that person face to face. You don't make an object of the person. You don't say they're your enemy. You don't go talk to someone else about them. You don't make an army of people on your side. You go to see them. Like you go into their presence. You go to see them face to face. And you see, like, is there a connection there? And if not, the scripture passage says you just gradually ask other people to come around. Not to gang up on someone or to try to, like, kick them out of your club. It is to go, to listen, to listen to the words that are being spoken. And the passage uses the word witness. To be witness in the, to the person in the presence of Jesus. To be a witness to the person in the very presence of Christ. So it's face-to-face. It's not making an object of your enemy. It's not banner-waving or gathering a bunch of others to your cause. What it is, is it's mutuality. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, Jesus says, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen... Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. A few things we learn from this passage about dealing with conflict. First of all, the language of the passage is family language. If a brother or sister sins. Second thing is, most commentators say that the word if would really better be translated when. It's not so much if a brother or sister sins, it's really when a brother or sister sins, because we all sin. Jesus is basically describing in this passage, like there are a group of people who all see themselves as fallen, all see themselves dealing with the ramifications of the great Act to rebellion. It's showing up in their lives in sin and shame, and they're all owning that. They're all aware of that. They're not afraid of that. They're not trying to hide that. They're not, uh, they're willing to address that. And somehow, they all manage to keep calling one another family. And this is what a true church is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer brilliantly observed that many communities aren't Christian. He says they're only pious. This is what he said. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. <laughs> So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, one time he said, tear off your masks. The church was never meant to be a masquerade. I love that quote. Tear off your masks. It's not really if your brother, and sister, uh, brother or sister sins. It's when. And it's when you, right? Both. There's also a very important textual issue in this passage, Matthew 18, 15. It revolves around the phrase that gets translated, sins against you. So the earliest manuscripts actually omit the part that says against you, which would leave the verse to say, if your brother or sister sins. Not if your brother and sister or sister sins against you, just if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. So... This is the preferred translation in, like, the, for those of you who care, like the NAS, the NET, the NIV, but like the King James Version, the ESV, the NLT, they prefer the longer reading, okay? So this is like a debate among biblical scholars. If your brother or sister sins against you, or if your brother or sister sins. It seems most of the evidence uh, goes towards the shorter reading, but... That would actually mean, I mean, think about how difficult it is for you and I to just follow the radical third-way teachings of Jesus. This means, if, that, if that, that is the case, this means among our relationships with each other, we don't ignore all the things we tend to accept, like materialism, greed, all of, all of our various addictions, like, Right? Like, if, 
if your brother or sister sins, not ju- it's not just if it's against you. If your brother or sister sins, I mean, this is like so countercultural. Like, if we take this seriously, we have no excuse to overlook pride, racism, hatred, gossip, just because it doesn't impact me. Just because it doesn't impact me directly. We should care because the great rebellion in Act 2, like, it's harmed us all. And we live in that big story. And the rule and reign of Jesus causes us to say, like, we're all sinners saved by grace. There's no room for superiority in our relationships. Because in the story of God, like, sin and shame, it always harms. It harms all of us. So when Jesus is doing this teaching, the goal is always restoration. The goal is to restore relationships. Jesus is saying, when somebody sins, go yourself. Go yourself face to face. And I think it's worth noting, you know, Jesus doesn't say like, um, just go to everybody that you disagree with. You know, it's do this if there's sin. So I, I, think, it, I think we could say then, you know, we don't seek to restore people over something we just disagree about. Um, it's, it's not like personal preference. So I don't think it's, you know, we don't, we, you could say it like, like we don't go, um, we don't have the need to go to someone to restore them because we disagree on how they vote. But maybe we would approach one another to address how we talk about people who vote differently. We go to our brother or sister and we go directly and we don't go like a prosecutor. When we go, we go gently with the intent to restore a relationship where Jesus is Lord, his rule and his reign is supreme among us, in us and in our community. So in this grand story of the Bible, we're living in Act 5, New Testament mission. And these are Jesus' instructions for his followers on dealing with conflict. In God's kingdom, like, contempt gets replaced with respect. Because we recognize we're all in need of God's mercy and grace. And there's no room for superiority in our conflicts. Rather, in the very presence of Christ, we enter one another's presence with humility and service and love. So, it's a challenging teaching from Jesus. And may we just remember right now the larger story that we move in. May we repent of our complicity in the culture of contempt that surrounds us. May we not succumb to the story that celebrates the enemy-making machine. But may we instead work to find a space beyond enemies that has Christ's rule and Christ's reign at its very center. As we all know, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But friends, we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That kingdom is not in trouble. And so neither are you. May we find our identity 
and our mission and our purpose. May we find our words and our motives and the adoration of our heart in this larger story of God today. Let's pray. Well, we pray together as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.